I'm really glad to see so many of you here. I was telling Sheldon and Rebecca as we were gathering in preparation that I had one of those awful dreams last night that I was on my way to church, but I just couldn't get here. And I was running late, and I just couldn't get here. And it didn't help that I was in a horse and buggy. (laughs) And I just wasn't sure if when I finally showed up whether anybody would be sticking around to hear the sermon. So I'm glad you stuck around. I hope it's worth it. Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are few things worse in life than feeling like an outsider. Sometimes we say it doesn't really bother us. But when others are in the inside and we are on the outside, it really stinks. As a high school student, back in the 1980s, I was a popular kid, even in the very large public high school that I attended. I was involved actively in sports and music and drama and student government And I was well-liked by teachers and other students alike. I had an active social life. And I was a good kid. And I had friends who were good kids, too. And they, they too, were well-respected by many. By my senior year, when I would be with my friends, alcohol started becoming more prevalent at our gatherings. These were good kids, but still they thought it was cool or necessary to have alcohol. I didn't have any desire to drink, and everyone knew that without asking me. Sometimes I would leave the events when I saw that alcohol was present, and other times I didn't leave and just participated with the friends but didn't drink the alcohol. During the summer after our high school graduation, I began to realize something that was happening slowly, but that over time, my friends were not inviting me to their get-togethers anymore. Even my closest friends would accidentally forget to call me. And while missing the parties themselves didn't bother me, what did bother me was learning that they weren't inviting me to any get-together anymore. While on the surface, they acted like they still liked me. I was still one of their best friends. But they didn't invite me to hang out with them socially in any way anymore. They chose one aspect of my life and decided because of that that I wasn't worth having to be around them as a result. The realization that I wasn't invited, wanted, or welcomed by my peers was incredibly saddening and disappointing to me. Being on the outside, even because of moral choices, is never easy and can be painful, whatever the age. We all, I believe, have a deep desire to be accepted in some sense, to feel loved and wanted, appreciated and affirmed, needed, and welcomed. 
there is always, it seems, an us and a them. And with the, and with the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, the us were the Jews and the them were the Gentiles, or so they were called the uncircumcised. And while we don't fully understand what that term means today, the, ter the term is actually an incredibly derogatory term. It would be like calling somebody a racial slang term today that would be incredibly offensive. I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, because I want to engage you with the text more thoroughly this way. And we're going to start in chapter 2 with verses 11 and 12. And that's where the Gentiles were reminded of their former state. They were outsiders, especially from the Jewish perspective. And that time, Gentiles were, first of all, without Christ. Or from a Jewish perspective, without a Messiah. Tom Yoder Neufeld, who wrote an Anabaptist commentary on the book of Ephesians, write, the phrase, without Christ, does not simply state the obvious that they were once not believers in Christ and thus not beneficiaries of his saving work. Here, without Christ, is part of the inventory of what it means for Gentiles not to have been Jewish. They were excluded from the community from whom and for whom the Messiah would come. In other words, the Gentiles were without hope. The Gentiles were without any hope. In first century living in the early church, the Jewish exclusiveness frequently led to charges of misanthropy. As there were great separations among Jews and Gentiles, even in the early church, I don't think we realize how, how different these two groups still were. There's a debate among biblical scholars as to how much the Jews offered even the welcome mat to the Gentiles joining them. And in some cities, it is proven that relationships with Jews and Gentiles were so complex that the two groups really didn't communicate at all, even though both claimed to belong to the early church. The Ephesians were dealing with some of this same us and them stuff, the outsider-insider issues, and it was intense. The terms being used in our English text today may not sound like much to us now, but the terms in the original Greek were stirring up ethnic and religious tensions that added to the Jewish and Gentile separations. And so this passage in, in Ephesians 2 highlights one of Paul's most, theo most important theological insights. Paul had har argued in the past in the book of Galatians that the Gentiles should not be required to adopt Jewish customs as God had a different plan to bring everyone together. One commentator says that Paul uses the baptismal formula to insist that God did not intend for the church to be split along socioeconomic ethnic or gender lines. And I read what Arlie also referred to in Galatians 3, 26 to 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. 
And yet, despite all of this, here Paul is dealing with insiders who feel justified for who they are. Justified that the outsiders should indeed remain outside. Now, those of you who have ever asked me, and not all of you have, what I think about Eugene Peterson's message, you know how I feel. But those of you who have never asked me will now learn. I have deep respect for Eugene Peterson. In fact, I have three of Eugene Peterson's books on my sabbatical reading list, a pile of books, and so I highly appreciate him. The thing that always concerns me about the message is when people read it as though it is a biblical translation. It is not, and Peterson would be the first to say this, the message is not a biblical translation of the Greek, it is rather an interpretation, one person's interpretation, whereas books like the NRSV, they have hundreds of biblical scholars who come together to evaluate the text and things. And so I think it's important when we read the message that we, rem- that we keep that in mind, that this is one person, a very well-respected, educated um, biblical scholar, but it is one person's interpretation of the Bible. Nonetheless, Peterson has good stuff to share with us when we keep that in mind. And it was Peterson's text this week that caught me in a new way as I read what Peterson had to say about Ephesians. And so I would like to read with you Peterson's words, his interpretation of what Paul is saying to the people of Ephesus. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this, didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel's, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now, because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. And then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you, outsiders, and peace to us, insiders. He treated us as equals, and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using all of us, irrespective of how we got here and what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you 
fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day by day. A holy temple built by God. All of us built into it. A temple in which God is quite at home. I'd like to think that the passage in Ephesians, from whichever interpretation or translation you read, has little to say to us here at East Chestnut Street today. We're open to outsiders. We like it when new people come to our church. We serve community meals on Monday nights to people of lower economic status than most of us. We run in the Race Against Racism, sponsored by the YWCA, not only because it's good exercise, but because we believe in the cause. But yet when it comes down to it, there are still things that divide us. Places where we think we are indeed better than others. Whether it's feeling better than others here at East Chestnut Street or better than others outside of East Chestnut Street, sometimes these feelings of being better are based, in fact, on how we read and how we interpret the Bible, how we understand our scriptures. It may have to do with our view of women in church leadership. It may have to do with our view of divorce and remarriage, our view of wearing jewelry or health insurance or life insurance or environmental issues. It may have to do with our view of homosexuality, or it may have to do with our view of war and pacifism. We have read the scriptures. We know what we believe. We are right, and they are wrong. And that's when we hear it again. The us and them language, the way we so quickly make us the insiders and them the outsiders. And the language that divides us is prevalent in chapter 2, and I invite you again, verses 14 through 16 in chapter 2. There are words there that highlight this. Dividing walls, barriers, hostilities, decrees, enmity. These are things that destroy us, and so they must be destroyed. But destroying such barriers like these things that divide us isn't easy. We are, after all, passionate about our views, our feelings, our justifications. We have studied, we have thought about, we have prayed about, we have discerned as a community, and we have sought guidance on these issues. We are right. And so the barriers still exist. But one thing we have going for us, Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians, is Christ. And thank goodness, because we couldn't do this on our own. One commentator wrote, unity is not merely the end of human enmity. It also involves reconciliation with God through the cross. Making peace between estranged parties does not always imply that they become one. 
The body metaphor referred to in Paul's writing requires harmonious concord, but such peace could embrace differentiated parts. Through the cross indicates that the death of Christ is understood as the sacrifice that brings reconciliation. What would today's church be like if some 2,000 years ago Paul didn't say it so so bluntly to the people in Ephesus? He didn't say it like, your people are killing yourselves. You aren't unequal, you're all one, one important part of humanity brought together not because of anything you have done, but because, thank goodness, of what Jesus has done for you. You don't deserve to be on the inside just as no one else deserves to be on the outside, and so you are all together as equals in Christ. If Paul would not have had the courage to say that, would the church even be in existence today? What would have happened to the church in Ephesus if the people hadn't heard these strong words of unity? What would have happened to the early church in general? Would it have survived? Would it be here today? And what does it look like to us to welcome the outsider here in our midst? Who are our outsiders? What do they look like to us? Are we willing to open our doors and our churches and our hearts to someone who's actively engaged in the military, supporting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Are we willing to welcome the homosexual in our midst? Are we, welcome, are we willing to welcome the one who opposes women in church leadership? And can we say to them, yes, you are my brother and sister in Christ, and you are welcome here. Are we willing to welcome those with needs far greater than the gifts that they have to offer and say, come in, have a seat, we want you here. These are tough questions. I don't offer any answers. I pose the questions based on what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. How do we define who are the insiders and the outsiders? Can we believe that through all of the dichotomy and the need for separation, Christ is in fact bringing about reconciliation even now? by the giving of Christ's own life, both in the sense that he gave his life for humanity and that he gives life to humanity. Through his death, Christ does away with the law and its function as a deciding law. Insiders and outsiders now come to make up a church as a household and family. Jews and Gentiles provide God with a beautiful dwelling place in which God feels right at home. And in verses 19 through 22 of Ephesians, we don't pick it up in the English, unfortunately, but any of you who have studied another language know that often the pronoun you is very different in other, in other languages. There's usually not just one word. And thus the same way in, in how the Greek used the word you. But there's something even different about how this pronoun you is used in verses 19 through 22. This is a new you, 
And the word introduces a new image for community. It doesn't exclude anybody. It's a sense that all people belong to the household of God. What will happen to our church now in 2009 if we don't hear these words of Paul directed towards us, the church at East Chestnut Street, or directed towards Mennonite Church USA, or directed to the broader Christian church throughout the world? Are we excluding them? And you fill in the blank who the they are for you. Are we excluding them in order to preserve us? And in doing so, will the us disintegrate? How will we know? Only the future of the church can tell us. Amen.